Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week, we continue our series on white Christian nationalism by welcoming the prolific and talented Jamar Tisby. Jamar is the author of the best-selling book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the Church's Complicity in Racism. He's a co-host of the podcast, Pass the Mic, and a professor of history at Simmons College of Kentucky, the oldest and the only historically black college in the state. And the people most likely to support white Christian nationalism are the ones who'd never heard of it. <laughs> in other words, it's, it's the people who don't study it, don't think it's a thing, maybe have never even come across the phrase, but nonetheless, they're practicing it. That's what's so dangerous about it. His writing has been featured in the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the New York Times, among others. And he speaks nationwide on the topics of racial justice, U.S. history, and Christianity. Jamar, welcome. I'm so glad to be talking. We've been talking more and more these days, but now we'll put this one uh, on the tape. I'm so pleased you're joining us. I like to ask, always ask my guests in this podcast, how is your spirit these days, Jamar? How is your spirit? Thank you, Jim. I'm glad to join you on this. And I really appreciate that question. How is your spirit? My soul is doing better than it's been. <laughs> I've had to undergo a years-long process of decolonizing my faith. I talk about this often, but I became a Christian in white evangelical contexts. Uh, some very great people, and to this day, dear friends within those fellowships. But it was a very narrow tradition, as you well know. And at least since Trayvon Martin's death and accelerating with uh, Black Lives Matter and Trumpism and everything we've seen in the last 10 years, uh, it's been a very difficult journey to sort of um, extract the whiteness, uh, the white ideology from Christianity, get back to the Middle Eastern Jewish Jesus, um, and, and really focus on that. So it's been, it's been, you know, a wilderness in a, in a lot of ways, a dry spell in a lot of ways, as I'm seeking God in places and in people that I hadn't before, but it's been very rich. And thankfully, you know, there's a renewed energy around prayer, around reading God's word, around being with God's people. So I'm, I'm thankful, but it's been a very long journey. Well, as we both know, racism is America's story. And key to changing that story is all of us, I have my students tell their own stories about race, because that's what will change this story. And it's our relationships, like the one that you and I now have together, that's going to be crucial for changing all this. Your, your background, uh, like mine, <laughs> is ev evangelical. And uh, say more about your unique, I think quite unique personal story. You came to faith in the white evangelical world, but later you felt deeply uncomfortable in that tradition. But tell your own unique personal story there. You know, uh, black Americans are very religious people, and my family was no different. So we, we believed in God. I went to Catholic school, K through eight, but it really wasn't 
a big part of our family life. There was no hostility, but we didn't go to church. We didn't really talk about that stuff too much. Um, When I got to high school, I had a classic conversion story. I mean, you could put this down in a textbook. Uh, I had a friend who was a white guy. We had freshman health class together. We joked around, became friends. Eventually, he invited me to youth group. I started, uh, I came because of the basketball and the food and the girls and all that stuff. But they were these little 15 minute sermonettes by the youth pastor that kind of really made sense to me. And eventually, <laughs> they, they cornered me in a cabin in uh, during a youth retreat. It wasn't hostile. It's just funny to think about. Um, and, and I said the sinner's prayer and I accepted Jesus into my heart and all of that stuff. And what was so interesting is that recently, as I've, I've, I've been reflecting on it, um, for a long time, I thought that my pursuit of racial justice was from a set of negative experiences. And, and that's certainly true in, in many ways. But I think, honestly, because of the experience I had in high school that was actually so positive, that's why I pursue racial justice. Because I felt, you know, high school, you're always trying to find your place and everything. And I didn't feel like I had one. But then I came to this youth group, this Christian group, and I felt like I had a community and friends and fellowship. And so much of my work since then has been to reduce racism as a barrier to any sense of healthy community or identity and get a little taste of what I experienced in that youth group in high school, but even deepen it because now we don't just ignore race. We can include perspectives about race and seek true unity. I was very struck in reading your story again before this conversation, how you just naturally thought you would help bring diversity into this white evangelical world. You started new things, and you thought that'd be welcomed by your friends. But then you encountered this, uh, as you say, ideology uh, of white racism, of white supremacy, deeply embedded in that white evangelical world. And then this old heresy of white Christian nationalism that now undergirds the old ideology of white supremacy. I remember you saying at a meeting of faith leaders we both were at in December, an Advent retreat, you spoke powerfully of feeling betrayed. That's the word you used. Betrayed after President Trump was elected with the support of white evangelicals in 2016. And then again, in 2020, 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. You know, at least from the early 90s up through, I'd say the early 2010s, there was a way that evangelicals spoke about race. They called it racial reconciliation. They, you know, did racial reconciliation Sundays, pulpit exchanges. They welcomed black people and other people of color into their congregation. It was a feather in their cap, right? So there's actually, to this day, a way of talking about and approaching issues of race in a way that a lot of white evangelicals are comfortable with. What they're not comfortable with, I found, was when you went beyond just handshakes and hugs and cups of coffee to solve racism. And you started talking about policies and systems and institutions. And there was a there was a sense in which my perspective was transformed by joining Teach for America. And they placed me in the Delta region of Arkansas, which is the poorest portion of the state. And it also has the highest concentration of black people. And those two are not coincidental. It traces all the way back to race-based chattel slavery, where you needed more laborers than owners. And 
the disparities have persisted to this day. And I know these folks, they're walking into my classroom, I'm interacting with their parents and guardians, and I'm like, they're not lazy, they're not unintelligent, they're not anything that we want to label poor people. Really, they're in a system that makes transcending that system almost impossible. And that's by design. So when I started talking about that, I started getting a different reaction. And of course, things accelerated when you get the murder of Trayvon Martin, a year later, his killers acquitted, and then Black Lives Matter becomes a phrase. That doesn't reach national prominence till August 2014, when Mike Brown is killed by a police officer. And then you start saying Black Lives Matter, and white evangelicals say all lives matter, blue lives matter, right? Same sort of talking points as the far right in the political sphere. And then, of course, you get Trumpism, which didn't even start in 2016 when he was elected. That started in 2015 in May when he announced. And you see this belligerent, sexist, racist at the highest levels of prominence. And, and you see these white evangelicals be like, yeah, yeah, you know, what he's saying makes sense. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Because I thought what you taught me in your churches and your youth groups and your whatevers is that we're all created equal. And if that's true, then we need, we need to make space for one another. And at the very least, we need to talk respectfully to and about one another. And this guy, which is just a representative of a human representative of a bigger ideology, right? He betrays all of that. So, so when I saw that support, not even just for Trump, but just the, the, the trend toward further leaning to the right, it did feel like a betrayal because I had invested so much into these spaces. You recorded a podcast expressing your sense of disappointment uh, and even a deeper feeling of being betrayed. As you say, then, as you say, all hell broke loose after this podcast. Share with our audience the story of what exactly happened here with your podcast. <laughs> I um, I'm thankful for this journey. At the time it happened, it was quite bracing. So it was the night Trump got elected in 2016. I stayed up. I watched the results. It was this sinking, dreadful feeling that what we thought, what we hoped wouldn't happen actually did happen. Then the next day, uh, I got on the mic for our podcast, Pass the Mic. Our producer, Bo, interviewed me. And I just talked about my honest reactions as a black man in America and a black Christian uh, to the election of Trump. None of what I said would have been controversial to a lot of people, but to a certain subset of people, it was anathema. So the thing that really ticked them off, I said I did not feel comfortable worshiping at my predominantly white evangelical church that Sunday. Actually, I said I didn't feel safe worshiping there. And what I meant was spiritually, emotionally safe, right? Like these folks had held my child, we'd had dinner together, we prayed and sang together, all of these things. I thought we were sharing life together. But when it came to the voting booth, it was like I didn't exist. It was like Black people and our concerns and anyone who wasn't white or middle class or whatever, didn't matter. And so it was that sense of betrayal again. Well, some discernment blogger, whatever, heard it. You know, like they, they, they just seek you out. Like they build their whole platforms on just trying to tear people. They don't, they're so lazy in their content because they wait for somebody else to do something and then they talk about what other people did. So it's like, do your own thing, be original. But anyway, um, he did it like a, over an hour long takedown of me on YouTube. And then the bad part, the worst part was his minions got a hold of it. These trolls started coming out of the woodwork online. And for three weeks straight, it was nonstop trolling the most vile memes and language and racial slurs and all that. And these are coming from folks in Christian circles. So I'm like, whoa, okay. So this is the third rail 
It's not just talking about race. It's talking about race and politics because that's talking about power, which is so much of what white Christian nationalism is about. You've written powerfully about the connections between racism and that white Christian nationalism from both a personal and political point of view. I'm curious, can you talk more about how you've seen that connection show up in ways that others might not see or even consider white Christian nationalism? They all want to say, oh, I'm not that. What is that? You said, it's a great quote here I love, sin in the form of white nationalism crouches at the door of every congregation. What are some of the ways you've seen that crouching at the door through your own personal experience, but also through your research and reporting? So here's what I think is most pernicious about white Christian nationalism. A lot of people don't know what that combination of words means. They can't define it. Some, Some folks have never heard of it. In fact, there was a study um, that the Public Religion Research Institute in partnership with the Brookings Institution just released, and they showed that the people most likely to oppose white Christian nationalism are the ones who had heard of it and could describe it, and the people most likely to support white Christian nationalism are the ones who'd never heard of it. <laughs> in other words, it's it's the people who don't study it, don't think it's a thing, maybe have never even come across the phrase, but nonetheless, they're practicing it. That's what's so dangerous about it. For so many white evangelical Christians in particular, which is the the, the group most likely to subscribe to white Christian nationalist beliefs, for so many of them, it's not white Christian nationalism, it's just Christianity. And so when it crouches at the door, it's like, it's like, it's like in the water, it's the air they breathe, it's just quote unquote, how you do church. And they're not seeing, oh, no, 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 this is actually a toxic blend of nationalism and religion and bigotry, and you're calling it Christianity. Well, let's, let's take your, uh, your vocation as a historian. It seems that ground zero for the anti-CRT backlash is becoming Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican with, a, with clear presidential ambitions, has made CRT a big issue. Uh, he's got his own junk junk drawer, I think, for this. Uh, most recently by rejecting the proposed standards for an advanced placement AP course in African American studies. As a historian, as a historian, what do you see as some of the larger factors at play in DeSantis' objections to the new AP course? And what are some of his specific objections to this AP course material? Because history is really on the line here and at stake here, and you're a historian. Thank you for that. I have very strong feelings about all of this. Um, first, I think it's important to to make the distinction. Um, African-American studies and African-American or Black history are different. I know you know that, but just for folks, it's, it's like, you know, when this was first coming out, they didn't know whether to say African-American history, African-American studies. African-American studies is really interdisciplinary. It's going to be psychology, literature, history, all of it. And it's also going to be much more contemporary. So you can go as far back as you want, but you can also be as contemporary as you want. Whereas black history, obviously, is going to focus on history and the tools of the discipline are are different. So we're, we're working mainly with primary sources in archives and, and different places like that. So they're distinct, but they're very related. You cannot do African-American studies without black history. So any effort to impede African-American studies is is simultaneously an effort to impede 
Black history. And what's so pernicious about it is this is precisely the time we need to be learning more Black history, not making it harder to do so. Why do we need to learn more? Why? So we can understand why Tyree Nichols, rest his soul, is dead at the hands of police brutality. Uh, so we can understand the, the origins of the police force and why it tends to these very violent responses in, in, in situations where it's not necessary. We also need history to, to, to help us have a better perspective of ourselves. This is why they're opposing the 1619 Project, because that strips away this myth of American benevolence that goes along with the, the, the myths surrounding 1776 and this noble cause for independence. Well, what if slavery is actually at the foundation along with these ideals of, of liberty and equality for all, right? So all of that's happening. And then it's also related to white Christian nationalism, which not enough people have talked about yet, because when I went to seminary, this is just an example. When I went to seminary at a conservative seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, that was the first time I ever heard government schools or the term Caesar's schools. That was new to me because I had come from public education. I was a teacher and a principal. My wife was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. We celebrated public education. When I got down with all these conservative Christians is when they started saying, oh, you're giving your children up to the state and all this evil stuff is going to happen, right? So what DeSantis objected to is part of the culture wars, is part of white Christian nationalisms. You know, they're still mad that we, quote unquote, took prayer out of schools quote unquote, took the Bible out of school, right? They're still mad that they don't get to promulgate their religious beliefs in public schools. And so that's part of the reaction. He objected to things like Black Lives Matter is now considered optional in the curriculum. He objected to uh, Black queer theory and studies. Uh, you know, there's a laundry list of all the usual suspects that the far right trots out as, as boogeymen. And it's really, really dangerous because it can happen so quickly, and it can be so hard to reverse. You know, um, Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson uh, wrote, I think, first day of Black History Month this year, a column that said, Black history is real American history. And Governor Youngquist, another Republican governor, was running for office on this point, and he made it a parents' rights issue. So uh, we're in the D.C. area, so we got to see some of the ads he was running. You had Loudoun County mothers saying they didn't want their ki kids to be to feel guilty and responsible for slavery, as if they're the ones that should be held responsible for slavery. And so he ran on parents' rights. <laughs> and this was really about um, uh, these, as I put it, when, when parents tell their kids not to lie, and then they deny them the truth, it's like they're lying to their kids. They're having their kids live with lies that they either tell them or they just obscure, hide the truth from the kids. You can't tell your kids don't lie and then uh, deny the truth to your kids. But that's what he ran, ran on. And Socrates once said, one of the most difficult and delicate things to do is to remove someone's delusions. I like that. To remove someone's delusions. If you do it wrong, you create defensiveness and animosity. You wrote a kid's book, a kid's book about this, How to Fight Racism as a Kid's Book, a handbook for pursuing racial justice for readers 8 to 12. And you're a teacher and your whole family, it sounds like. So how do we teach kids, particularly white kids, about racism and this country's history of racism? You know, the biggest thing is 
emotional. There are so many parents out there who are scared to talk about this. Um, it's more complex than that, but ultimately, and and I think it's 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 coming from a a, a place of genuine concern. They want to handle it well, but they know how delicate the topic is talking about racism with kids. You're torn as a parent. You want your kids, in a sense, not to see race, right? You don't want them to worry about it. You want them just to treat people like people, right? But at the same time, you want them to be prepared for the reality that's going on. And this is particularly white parents because black parents and other parents of color, we don't really have a choice. Like our kids experience racism way before we would ever have them. <laughs> Not that we'd ever have them do it, but it happens way earlier than we we desire. So we sort of have to, as a necessity, um, talk about it. But with white parents, it's just like the fear of getting it wrong. Where do I start? How do I start? So beyond tactics, this is just like everything. Like if you wanted to start a business or something, it's just starting. And, and along with just starting, I think it takes a little of the pressure off to realize it's not a one and done deal. Like it's not you're one shot on like America's Got Talent and you better nail it or you're out. <laughs> you can you can have multiple conversations. Like this is an ongoing journey with your kids or with young people in your life, which means, A, you don't have to cram it all in to one like seven hour conversation. Um, and B, if you mess up or or more than likely if you learn more and you figure out ways to, to talk about it or explain it better, that's good. And you'll have opportunities to do that. So getting started is the main thing. What I what I tell kids, what I'm trying to tell kids in the book is like, if you see something wrong, you can be part of the solution. I really want kids to embrace their agency. You don't have to just wait on adults. As a matter of fact, we mess things up a whole lot for our young people. Um, but young people, it reminds me, one of the stories I write about in, in the Young Readers Edition is the Birmingham Children's Crusade. And, and I write about uh, Audrey Faye Hendricks, who at nine years old was the youngest person to be arrested in the march. And when you think about that experience, like like I can just say that, it's like, oh, wow, wow, it's remarkable. But when you think about what she actually went through, she, she was in jail for a week without her parents, without a change of clothes, without a toothbrush, but she wanted to get involved. And really it was because of the involvement of young people in that crusade that helped turn the tide and, and, and help. Uh, forced desegregation in the town. So we need to get our kids involved. The earlier, the better at an age appropriate way. And I'll talk about that in the book. Um, but listen, our kids are savvy. They see, they observe, they process. They know, they know people get treated differently because of what they look like. And you can either leave that to social media and the culture to teach them about it, or as adults who love and care for them, we can take that responsibility. Yeah. I've met some of those Birmingham now adults who were those kids in the streets, and they literally climbed with ropes out the windows of their middle schools or churches because their principals and pastors didn't want them to be involved. And they climbed out when they were just kids, and it changed their lives. Some are bishops now and pastors and all kinds of things. But, you know, my experience with that, that age range that you wrote to, I was a little league coach for 22 seasons, and I coached those age kids the whole time. And when I told my white kids how their teammates, black teammates, parents, had to have the talk 
with them about how to behave in the presence of police officers. My white kids got really angry that this was, this was happening to their black teammates. They really were angry about it. And so telling kids this stuff, they didn't feel like they were responsible for it all. They didn't know what's happening. And when, when they heard, it was, you know, sometimes baseball teams, your teammates, your best friends are at the end of the season. You all talk about feeling like family. Well, this happened to their teammates and classmates made them really angry and they wanted to change it. So we kind of underestimate our kids thinking they'll be all uh, feeling guilty and shameful. And no, they they might want to be the abolitionists of their time in their own way. Absolutely. Release the release the youthful energy. It'll, it'll, it'll accelerate the process through progress. So who worries you more, Trump or DeSantis? Ooh, <laughs> great question. There's no DeSantis without Trumpism. So... You know, Trump, the figure, is very dangerous now that he's not the president, mostly annoying. DeSantis occupying an office. I think this might be too bold to say, but hear me out. It feels like Florida is the new Mississippi. And I say that as a Mississippian who lived there for several years, got two degrees from there. I'm not bashing the state. But in terms of reputation, for a long time, Mississippi was considered like the paradigm for the closed society, like the 1890 Constitution of Mississippi, uh, which disenfranchised black people, was was sort of taken as the pattern for other Southern states when they rewrote their state constitutions to disenfranchise voters. It, it, it seems like Florida is becoming that. It's becoming an archetype for a repressive, authoritarian, white Christian nationalist regime. DeSantis doesn't have the appeal that Trump has with his base. Uh, He's not dynamic like Trump is. A lot of reports say he's just a a wet fish. Like it's not, you know, he's boring (laughs) kind of a thing. But he knows all the hot button culture war issues that rally his base. He is savvy enough to get legislation passed. Uh, And I think he's also on the surface visibly enough a contrast for right-leaning voters that they would feel less icky <laughs> about voting for him th- than they do Trump. So it's very worrisome. You know, the the sort of best case scenario is that Trump runs his third party and and takes some of those votes away. But we should look at what he's what DeSantis is currently doing in Florida and knowing that's precisely what he would do at the federal level. It's kind of frightening to think of somebody who runs their campaign on banning books about American history. Um, last question. You, you have said, quote, too often Christian individuals and institutions act as if general statements condemning bigotry and saccharine assertions of racial and ethnic equality are sufficient to combat white Christian nationalism. They are not, you say. You, you say you like the question people ask, what do we do? What do we do? That's a question that you like. So when you talk about what can people do to combat uh, not only white Christian nationalism, but all forms of racism in churches? You talk about the Ark, A-R-C, and you don't mean Noah. So tell us about the Ark. What's the Ark? What's your Ark that you're suggesting? So my second book is called How to Fight Racism. We reference the Young Readers Edition, and I use this in both books. It's a framework uh, for, for fighting racism. And it's an acronym that stands for Awareness, 
relationships, commitment, ARC, awareness, relationships, commitment. I think you need all three, like the legs of a stool, to have a firm foundation on which to build your racial justice efforts. So, you know, I really didn't feel like I was being effective or helpful when people would ask me the, the most frequent question I get is like, what do we do? What do we do about racism? How do we fight against it? We're, we, we recognize this problem. We want to be part of the solution. And I just, I really didn't feel like I was being helpful by just giving like this bullet point list of, oh, try this, try that, do this, do that. So I thought, well, number one, it's very contextual. So, so what you need to be doing about racism in Washington, D.C. versus Louisville and in urban versus rural versus northern versus black, right? That all is slightly different, Right. And really, it's the people on the ground who can come up with the best solution. So rather than just throwing out a million options, which I do list a lot of practical ways to fight racism in the book, I thought this framework was helpful. What do we do to increase our awareness about racism, about white supremacy, about what we can do about it? Watching the documentaries, reading the books, going to the panel discussion, whatever it might be. But also relationships. And by relationships, I mean, yes, reaching out across racial and ethnic lines, but also strategic partnerships. How can we build coalitions and build solidarity with one another? And it's really a heart thing, right? Like, like, like we have to have humility and compassion and humanity in this thing. So it's not to just demonize and, and get into this us and them attitude. And then lastly, commitment, by which I mean not just staying the course, but committing to the systemic and policy changes that really restructure the way resources are allocated and the way we treat one another in the aggregate in our society, the arc of racial justice. Well said. Well, that's a, that's a great way to end here. And uh, at least for this conversation, there will, will be more. But I really appreciate you and your work and how you're um, uh, stepping into not just the evangelical world, but worlds beyond that now. And I think uh, your unique history and your voice, uh, you're kind of multilingual in lots of ways. You can speak to different constituencies in and outside the churches. So thank you for your work and your witness. And uh, I look forward to working together, continuing to. Well, like I said, thank you for your work. Thank you for the way your work has paved the way for people like me. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.